who call upon the God who saves the Lord. If your sins have been washed away, Stand up, find somebody, and tell them good morning. You are not alone if you are lonely when you feel afraid. You're not the only, we are all the same. Of mercy to be forgiven and be free. It's all you've got. 
I was having fun. Good morning, everybody. You know, when it rains, Carpenter's Way people stay home, and when it's sunny, Carpenter's Way people stay home. So for those of us who don't pay attention to the weather, hey, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Is this not a gorgeous, is this not beautiful after all these storms? I tell you what, I'm going to add storms to the things they didn't tell me about when I moved here 15 years ago. Love bugs, the level of humidity, and the storms. But you make it all worthwhile. Oh, and the fact that many of you are late to service on Sundays. Nobody told me about that either. I, but, but you know what? I'm not going to get into that. We are, I, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you for coming. Uh, we are glad you're here. We're uh, continuing in our study of uh, Who Is This Man is the name of our series we're in right now. And we are looking at the like, life of Jesus from all four of the Gospels. We're trying to do it in chronological order, which isn't always easy because it doesn't exactly tell us all the time. We can kind of know what periods of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry we're in. But uh, I'm, really, I'm really excited about this morning's message. Of course, I say that every week. But, but uh, I even say this is extra special, but I'm just going to say this morning, we're going to have a good time in God's Word. And if you are watching online, we're glad to have you with us this morning. We encourage you to grab your Bibles, and uh, we'll be there in a few moments and worship along with us. If you have a bad singing voice, you can lip sync. Um, 
but we're just glad to have you joining with us online or in the room. And I know we have some visitors this morning. I met some of you, and we're awfully glad you're here. Uh, I, I want to make it clear what our goal is this morning. Our goal is that you fall in love with Jesus. We want you to like us. That's just part of being human. But we want you to love Jesus. Uh, he is the one that can save you. He is the one that can sustain you. He is the one that redeems. So thank you for being here. We are blessed to have you here. We want to get to know you. As soon as the service is over, Julie and I will be up front, and we would love to shake your hand and hug your neck and answer any questions about church that we can. But we are awfully glad that you're here this morning. I do want to uh, take some, a moment and highlight some things in our worship guide, so if you'll open it, uh, let me share some things with you. Um, I already welcomed visitors, uh, and uh, in a few moments we are going to take our offering, and this is the part of the service for those who attend here regularly. Uh, as that plate comes by, you just pass it. We don't want you distracted by money. Uh, this is, uh, we take an offering to support, we, we support to the tune of a little over $100,000 a year missions across the globe. Uh, we also support the ministries of Carpenter's Way from children all the way through to adults. We, it supports our staff and takes care of our, our stuff. If you haven't paid attention, our bathrooms are coming along very fine. Thank you very much. It will not be long until there will not be a line for the ladies' restroom. Yes, yes. thank the Lord for that. A throne for every royal child. That's our motto. We finally honed that down. And uh, uh, we have also gutted... Um, you may or may not be aware that between this building and the student building, we have a lot of intra-building, lots of facility. It used to be our student ministry area. That has all been gutted. And one of these weeks, we're going to open those doors so you can poke your head in and see. That will eventually be our adult discipleship wing that we are still raising money for. We are super excited because at this point, like our bathrooms, we're doing all that for cash. I mean, we are so thankful for your giving, you guys. I mean, thank you. Forgiving it allows us to do this, and and uh, we're we're not thinking that taking out debt is a is a sinful thing, but boy, it's sure nicer to do it for cash. Then we don't have to pay a note on that. So that's where we're at with that project, and uh, and we we appreciate your involvement and your support, and and uh, bless your hearts. Okay, um, did you catch that? Did you miss it? <laughs> I did not call all of you morons. Um. I want to mention this morning also in the middle top, we're excited because we're bringing a couple families into membership in the church. The church continually grows. The Lord has taken some of our families and moved them to Houston and Dallas for work. And God brings new people in and our hearts go with them and our hearts celebrate. Those of you, God is drawing us in and we have the Laird family and Rob Stewart, not the musician, uh, but Rob Stewart. I have heard him sing. He will not be singing, but... It is Rob, not Rod. I know most of you, are, some of you are aware of that, but that ages you. But anyway, welcome into membership, and you'll get to know them as, as they get more involved, and we're, we're excited about that. Okay, take a deep breath. Those of you who have seniors, graduating students, I need, I need you to take a deep breath, because I'm going to tell you, today is the deadline to get your pictures in for our graduation service. Uh, every year, somebody tries to turn in pictures the day before. Uh, they put a slideshow together and different things. We really, really need you to do that. If you need, uh, if, if for some reason you can't do that today, you need to touch base with Mark Dubose or Jeff Bonin. And uh, that's uh, Jeff's email is jeff at cwbc.org. Maybe you're watching online or you're out of town or whatever. Please email them and, and get it worked out so that we can make sure that your kids are in that. Um, and we, we just don't want anybody's feelings hurt. We don't want to miss anybody, but the deadline is today. So so make sure, make sure you work on that. Um, I think... Well, Alicia's not up here. I was looking for her. I, I think that does it for the announcements today. Jeff, is there anything else we need to mention?
Okay. Uh, if, if you have any questions, you know, the staff is always around. Feel free to call or email or text, or, um, and, and we're glad to answer questions. I'm going to ask at this time for our ushers to come forward, and we are going to prepare for our offering, and we will commit our service to the Lord. It's going to be a great morning. Thanks again for being here. Look around you for somebody who you do not recognize. And when you look, I know that you're embarrassed to meet, you know, if you meet somebody for the fifth time. Ask them how long they've been with us, and they'll say, oh, it's my first time, and then you can go, oh, introduce them around and take them to Bible study and all. So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we're thankful that you love us. That's, that's way bigger than us loving you. And Lord, uh, we, we want to get to know you as you are, not as you have been presented to us. And that takes time and effort and thought and prayer and, and the Holy Spirit's illumination, and we need all those things today. Father, I thank you for a good group this morning, and, and I thank you for this beautiful weather right now. It's just, it's just so gorgeous. It's so much like life. There are storms, and then there's beauty, and, and you protect us. And I know some members of our church have uh, had, some, had trees go through their houses this week. Thank you for protecting their bodies. Uh, Lord, thank you for providing for us and, and how you take care of us. And we commit our service to you. We commit every word that's going to be sung. We commit every word that's going to be preached. And we pray, Father, that the words of men would fade away so that the words of God would endure forever. Thank you for allowing us to gather. And now, Lord, take over and own this time. Amen. Mark had mentioned uh, if you can't sing, just a lip sync. Um, I'm going to correct him. Sorry. It's my experience that if you don't know how to sing, you don't know that you don't know how to sing. And usually those who don't know how to sing are the ones that sing the loudest. So if you're on the fence about not knowing if you can sing or not, you probably are okay. Because if you can't sing, you don't know. Does that make sense? So no lip singing. No, no lip singing. Everybody join in. And you can stand and worship with us if you like. From heaven's throne you came to us. And set your heart upon the cross. We'll never know the sacrifice you've made. For all our sin and all our shame, you took the nails, you took our place. And no one else could do what you have done. One name is higher, one name is stronger than any grave, than any throne, Christ exalted over all. And from the grave where death would die, you rose again and brought us life. You're reigning now, the Savior of the world. Oh, you're reigning now, the Savior of the world. One name is higher, one name is stronger than any grave, than any throne. Messiah, to you alone I pray. 
who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. There you are, more than I imagine, standing here in front of me. There you are, words can't describe you, I fall down before you. There you are. There you all of your glory, heavenly host, sing your praise. There you are, seated at the right hand, with victory in your hand. There you are, and my heart cries out, holy, oh God, you are worthy of all the glory 
Listen, it is so amazing. I, I'm probably, if I attended church, I'd sit in the back row too, but you don't get to hear people screaming down your neck. And that is, man, to sing, to listen to you. Do you realize, I was thinking as you were singing this morning, uh, um, do you realize that we are joining this morning millions and millions of people across the globe that are singing songs of praise to their Lord? In China, in Sri Lanka, in, in, in the Middle East, in Iran and Iraq, all over the globe, in Afghanistan. There are brothers and sisters this morning singing these songs of praise to the Lord. And we get to join them. And one day we will stand arm in arm, hand in hand with them, standing around the throne, singing praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and, and you know, at the end of the day, that's the point. It is well with our souls. Uh, let's jump right in this morning. Uh, let, actually, let me pray. Let me pray for us. And then, uh, Lord Jesus, I ask you uh, to speak through me this morning. Um, I thank you for the time of, in the Word I had this week and the things that you said to me. But I'm fully aware of my weakness and, and my, that I can be a distraction. And Father, I ask this morning that your Word would um, burn into the souls of your children. That those that are here today or watching online that do not know you, that today would be the day of their salvation, their adoption into the family of God. And for the rest of us, Father, may we not be satisfied with it being well with our soul. Now may we follow you with all of our hearts, regardless of the cost. Father, thank you that it is well with our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I, I'm going to read for you Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 11. It'll be on the screen. Um, and I, I know you know this, but I want you to think about what Paul is saying in this text. I want you to think about it. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Please notice it's in his eyes that, us, that we as the children of God stand without fault. Isn't that great news? God decided in advance. This was his plan. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This, adopting us, the reason he makes us holy. This adoption is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the, gracious, the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace, that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious uh, will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his good plan. And this is the plan. Here's the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on the earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his own plan. Let's leave that up there for a second. I want you to concentrate on that last line. He makes everything work out according to his plan. So you can now relax a little bit more about the election upcoming. You can relax about what you think about Congress. You can relax even about what you think about your spouse and their weaknesses, or your pastor, because all things 
are going to work out according to God's plan. That is great news, isn't it? You don't have to put a sign in your yard that says, vote Jesus for president. He's not running for president. You can trust that he's already got all things worked out, and that is, that is a great relief because life is scary. Uh, it, is, it is unnerving, all those things. But when you are the child of God and you are about his plan, you can rest in that plan because we are promised it in Ephesians 1 that he makes everything work out according to his plan. All of what I just read you, the fact that God's unchanging plan was to put all things under the authority of Christ, specifically that we would be adoptable, Jesus would make it possible for us to be adoptable, that is the backstory of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. That's why he lived three, 33 and a half years. That's why he ministered for three and a half years. And you've got to get your mind around that. Jesus Christ did not come to heal the sick, make the lame walk. He did not come to raise the dead. He came to be raised from the dead because that's what his father wanted. All of those other things, and we'll get more into this as we get into the life of Christ. We're in our 13th week of, this, of answering this question, who is this man? We are way deep and we are in John 5 and Luke 5. We're, we're moving along. Again, in about 14 and a half years, we'll be done with this study. But the truth is, the important thing you've got to understand is that it specifically tells us why Jesus Christ came, and that is to fulfill the Father's plan. We look at pictures of Jesus, uh, and, and, and wherever you're at spiritually, you tend to have a look in his eyes, and, and that, that isn't a photograph, by the way. That's a painting of somebody's idea of what Jesus looked like. But, but the fact is that, that we go, thank you, Jesus, for loving me, and surely he does, but I want to remind you that he came not out of love for you, but out of obedience to the Father. It was the Father that so loved the world that he sent his Son to save you. It's the Father's will. So you have a whole trinity, all three of him, and my English is perfect there, all three of him are in love with you. And all three of him decided before the world was formed that they wanted to save you. He wanted to save you. So they sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. And that's what we're looking at. The backstory of, of the life and ministry of Jesus is our adoption to fulfill his Father's will. That's why he came, and that is what he came to do. He had a plan. The Father had a plan. And the plan was dependent upon the work of Christ, the work that he would have to do, and what was the ultimate goal of that plan? Ephesians 1.5. He, he had decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. It was God's plan to bring us close to himself, to bring us close to himself and to adopt us into his family. Jesus was to pay the bill for our adoption. I want you to understand that Ephesians chapter 1 lays out all three members of the Trinity's work in our salvation, in our adoption. Um, for those of you who haven't been to church, but you've heard words like salvation, you can replace the word salvation with forgiveness. The bottom line is that we are born as humans in a sinful condition, and there is a God who must judge righteously and justly, and the problem is unless your sin is paid for, you cannot be in relation with God. So he sent Jesus to make his plan possible. God's unchanging plan at the core of his plan was to have a relationship with us. I believe, and theologians debate on this, so I want to be clear that this is just my belief, but when we talk about the image of God in man, I believe that it is a relational image. We know one thing about the Trinity before the world was created, and that is it tells us in the Scriptures that the Father was loving the Son, that the Father loved the Son. That's the one thing we know was going on before the world was created. There was a relationship. And when God made man, he made man in his image. And we are relational people. You as Texans love your dogs. 
I'd like to say overly love your dogs, but you love your dogs. You love your horses. Some of you love your pigs if you're farmers and, 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 and to name them so you can't kill them. But, but you, 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 love, you love animals. You love people. Some of us name our cars. That's weird too. It's just a car. It will let you down. But we, we, we're relational. We love our children. We love our spouses. We love relationships. And boy, do you do it well in Texas. One of my favorite things when I talk to people about what it's like living in Texas. It's like they're getting the inside scoop from a Yankee. These people know how to care for each other. They know how to badmouth each other in a positive way, but they know how to care for each other. Bless your heart is like the ultimate coup. It really is. It's the ultimate, it's the ultimate get out of jail card. You can say, that guy has gained about 50 pounds, bless his heart. But it still sounds nice, doesn't it? You know, her son, Billy, is as dumb as a hoe handle, bless his heart. I mean, it's just so nice. It's just, it's so sweet. What was that thing you said yesterday? Uh, our family, what, display our family? Yeah, that's right. I think Marsha Bradford told you that. Was that somebody? Sounds like Marsha Bradford. But she said, we don't, we don't hide crazy. We put it on the front porch, uh, front porch and, and give it sweet tea. That's, that's y'all. And you like yourself. Don't clap for you. Just pat the person in front of you on the back and say, bless your heart. I want you to know that I believe even that dysfunction, up north they just tell each other off and shoot each other, but, but, but the truth is, the, the truth is it's relationships, and, I, and I, I think you see that that is one constant from the Old Testament to the New, from the beginning of this book to the end. It's all about relationship. When Jesus Christ prayed in John 17, uh, his prayer uh, before he's arrested and crucified, it's a phenomenal prayer if you haven't read it. You want to know what the father and son talk about? Read John 17. But in there, at the end of that prayer, he says, I long for them to be with me as I'm with you. I look forward to bringing them home. When Jesus is thinking about leaving, he tells the disciples, uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. He's coming back for us. He's not coming back to fix the world or bring morality or, or to heal the sick. He's coming back for us. It's relational. And that, I want, I want you to wrap, wrap your minds around it. I want that to become part of our, of our spiritual DNA that that is at the core of Jesus' ministry. Everything he does, every day he spends on this planet, every moment of the three and a half years with the disciples is relationship building. It's about relationships. While our adoption and acceptance into God's family takes place in an instant, however, our transformation, which leads to an intimate relationship with God, that takes time. That takes a lot of time. Our new life in Christ our understanding of the love of God for us, the price that he paid to be in relationship with us, of who he really is and what he really wants, what he's done, the impact of that on our life, that takes time and personal sacrifice. Not just for us today who don't see Jesus in the flesh, but it was just as difficult for the disciples to get their mind around it. The disciples thought as most of the Jews in their day, that the Messiah was coming to be the second Moses. He was going to lead, as we've talked about, he was going to lead the Hebrews into a second renaissance. They were going to be the great nation again. They were sure that the kingdom of God was at hand and the Messiah would lead them. You're going to find as we go on that they never thought the Messiah would be greater than Moses. They thought Moses was the ultimate. Of course, they didn't live during his time. If you spend any time with Moses in the book of Exodus, you realize they didn't like Moses either. But the truth is that they thought that he was coming to fix all things that they sensed were broken. They thought their spiritual need had been taken care of, so just fix our country. 
it was difficult for the disciples to really begin to understand. And I, I was thinking this week as I read the text we're going to be into today, I wonder what it was like for the disciples as they walked with Jesus physically back in the day. I think, I think we've all thought that. What was that like? It must have been so much easier for them as they saw the miraculous things that he did and the things that he taught. It must have been so much easier for them. I mean, they could see him. The stories that we read, they watched happen in real time. But the thing is that you're going to learn is that just when something awesome happened, Jesus would then turn around and run the very same people he had drawn to himself off. I, I, some of you, and, and somebody already shared this with me this morning, you're going to begin to understand just how offensive Jesus was over and over again. Just when people were coming to hang out and going, we really like you, that was a great miracle, hey, do this for me, Jesus would then offend them with his teaching. Remember, we've already seen that with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and, and he's the greatest of the Jewish teachers, Jesus says, calls him that, and they're talking, and Jesus cuts him off and basically says, let me just get to, the, get to the chase. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Wow. Wow, talking about getting right to the point. That was offensive to Nicodemus, and if you, if you doubt that, you can go back and read that story, because Nicodemus starts uh, quizzing him on it. In our journey to discover who Jesus was from the Scriptures, we find ourselves now about six months into his ministry, into his plan. We um, have, have already looked at Jesus being baptized, the coronation of his ministry, and, and, and I want to tell you again that uh, we can sit during the week and we can debate which event took place first and what took place second. We know the general timing of when these things took place, but we don't have a calendar. Luke is probably uh, the book that most is concerned with chronological order uh, to a big degree. Why? Because remember that when Luke wrote uh, the book of Luke, he is doing a two-volume historical book to a guy named Theophilus that we believe was a Roman officer, and he's trying to witness to him or defend the history of the Jews. Some believe that Luke writes his gospel in order to help Theophilus defend Paul before the judges. And so he wants, he wants them to understand that the, the, uh, through the book of Luke and through the book of Acts that these aren't rebels, these aren't people who are trying to cause a problem, but these are actually, these are actually Jews who have, have seen the fulfillment of the Messiah. So give you, and, and we'll get, as we get more into these Gospels, by the way, over the coming 13 years, um, I will tell you more about each of them function and, and, and who they're writing to and why they're written the way they are. But chronological order, we know generally how things are laid out, but I, I know some of you want to debate, ask, why did you think this happened before that? I'm just using what I think is the best uh, biblical historians to tell us what's next in the story. The next couple weeks, like next week, we're going to actually look at what the disciples heard as they followed him. Uh, and we're going to be into some of that. You're going to listen to one of the messages of Jesus, which, which is, is pretty cool. I think it's the best message ever. Um, best text ever. That's not funny. I already said that about this text. So getting too serious this morning. We'll go to Wet Willies if you don't lighten up a little bit. This is good news, friends. This really, really good news. We've watched Jesus be baptized in the first six months. The disciples have, have watched him leave into the wilderness where he's tempted for, for over a month by Lucifer. John has declared that while he's only, he himself is only a preacher, that Jesus, the Messiah, is actually the Lamb of God that he's been preaching about. They've watched him turn water to wine at a community wedding. 
They've spent time with his family out in the, in, uh, at, at the week after he turns water to wine. They went with him to Jerusalem for Passover, and they saw him turn the tables of the religious leaders over. And then after that, he does miracles for the week of Passover and the, and the week of unleavened bread. And they, they start watching a groundswell of people tell, follow. Nicodemus comes at night, and they listen in as Jesus debates how a person gets into the kingdom of God. He started to gather quite a following. In fact, we read in recent weeks in our text that people loved Jesus and especially his miracles, as they do today. But at the same time, while he's gathering a big crowd, he's beginning to collect powerful enemies as well that drive him from the Judean Valley back to his own home region of Galilee where he's going to preach and perform miracles and forgive sin and and develop more followers, and, and, and actually pour into the lives of his 12. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ could have died on the cross, risen again, and saved mankind in a three-day period. The reason he spends 33 and a half years, and specifically three and a half years, is to develop a relationship with the people that want to be his followers. That's what that three years is about. He does not heal everybody everywhere. He doesn't preach to everybody everywhere. When people say, come to our town, he goes to a different town. You're going to be shocked if you've not read this story. Jesus is here more for the people that will follow and carry the message out than he actually is for all the lost. He is going to pay the price for the lost. He is going to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. But he is also to disciple the found. As where it relates to those that we will someday know as the disciples. At this point in Jesus' ministry, you might be su surprised to find that of the 12, you only have about four to six of them following him. You don't have all 12. Remember, when Jesus began to gather some of them, it was right after his baptism. Remember this story from John chapter 1? John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and they declared, look, there's the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they left and followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They, they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying. And they remained with him for the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John had said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Verse 42, then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, uh, Andrew uh, and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote, wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Prejudice, I'm telling you, it's all over that. That is racial profiling. That is regional profiling. It's worse than racial profiling. Please understand that's not new. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, they couldn't. Uh, Nathaniel doesn't even believe in Jesus before he meets him, and here's what he teaches simply because of where he was born. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity, which I think is Jesus taking a shot as prejudice. Well, you've got it together. Look at me from little Nazareth. That's my thought. 
How do you know about me, Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Good move, Nathanael, good move. When Jesus, before cell phones, can be across the region and see you studying the scriptures under a tree, you should bow the knee. And that's exactly what he does. This was simply within a month or so of Jesus' baptism, days after returning from being tempted. These five, remember there's two, one is identified as Andrew, then he goes and gets Simon, and then you have the other two here. The fact is there are five of them. These five begin to follow Jesus, to check him out, to see for themselves who he really was. This follow term, though, is only a casual following. These are not fully committed followers of Jesus. While acknowledging that he is the son of God, that he was the king of Israel, as Nathaniel says, while being saved, I think it's fair to say, and going with him, while watching water turn to wine, hanging out with Jesus' family, while attending Passover festivities, watching him turn tables over, do miracles, while even baptizing people, remember that. John's disciples are jealous of Jesus because he's starting to baptize more. And it tells us in that text that it wasn't Jesus that was baptizing, but his people. Jesus' people, these people, these five, are baptizing on Jesus' behalf in his presence. They are followers of Jesus, but I would like to just simply say that they're not fully devoted disciples, and you'll see why in a second. They love him. Now pay attention. They love him. They love his message. They take time to be with him. They love his miracles a lot, but they have not fully committed at this point. And why? Because this is a real relationship. This is the real deal. That isn't a religious word. It's a relationship with God, Jesus. It's a relationship. That kind of commitment, that kind of, of, of intimate knowledge, that kind of trust takes time, friends. Not just with your spouse or your boyfriend or your parents or your kids. It takes time even with God. And to be honest with you at this point, the five that are following him, Jesus hasn't even asked them to be his disciples yet. We sort of put everything together, but again, chrono chronological order helps us to understand, well, I'll, I'll get to that in the conclusion. So we find ourselves six months into Jesus' ministry when this story takes place out of Luke chapter 5. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the Word of God. Okay, I want to pause for a second. Can, can, uh, can you go back one verse, Louise? I want you to notice that Luke, who's recording the historicity of this, just called Jesus' preaching the Word of God. So if the Word of God is the words coming out of his mouth, he's not preaching the New Testament Scriptures. He is, in fact, calling Jesus God. If you are a Jehovah's Witness, if you are one of those that want Jesus simply to be a prophet, I apologize to you that the Scriptures do not give any ambiguity to that. Jesus is God. If you reject that, 1 John calls you an antichrist and you will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus is God. He is the Savior. He's the Messiah. You must bow the knee to him. And Luke right here just declared him. People are pressing in to hear him preach. Who is he? The word of God is preaching. It's not just John 1.1. And that was for those of you who may be watching who are struggling with who is Jesus. He is God. And when he spoke, what came out of his mouth? is the Word of God. Verse 2. Jesus noticed two empty boats at the water's edge. For the fishermen had left them there and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, that is Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. 
So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. So just to get some context again, we have Simon Peter, the fisherman, not disciple. He's not identified as a disciple of Jesus here. He is simply the fisherman. Simon Peter letting Jesus use his boat as a stage while he's still working his trade. I am not saying that Simon Peter is not a follower of Jesus or doesn't love Jesus or isn't a believer, but Simon Peter's heart is seen here. He's still a fisherman. That's what he's doing. That is his life calling. That is his goal. That is his, his priority. It is his life commitment. It is how he takes care of his family. Verse four, when he had finished speaking, referring to Jesus, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let, your nets, uh, let out down your nets to catch some fish. Pay attention. Peter really doesn't change in how he reacts to Jesus until after the ascension. Master, Simon replied, very respectful, Sir, Lord, Messiah, we worked hard all night and we didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. Uh, Understand, these are real people. These, these aren't Bible characters. They're, they're not little flanograph people. These are real, real people. I want you to remember that all night, P Peter's, Peter's tending his nets, and, and each time a fisherman would come in, I mean, it's their livelihood. It's, it's their hammer. It's their, you know, you, you, if, if you, if you, you got to take care of your tools. This is how they fed their families. This is how they lived. They would sell their fish. They would, when they brought the nets in, they would then take care of their nets. They would look for rips and they would sew them together every time they came back. As lumberjacks, you understand, growing up in this community, to sharpen your axe every day, right? If you don't, you're a Southern California lumberjack. And a tree this big is going to take six and a half months to cut down. Sharpen your axe. Peter's sharpening his axe. Why? Because he's a fisherman. He's a fisherman, and he's doing what fishermen do, and he's not having a good morning. I know that it's hard to believe, but not, you're not the only one in the world that has bad days. Peter and his team has had a bad night. They were fishing all night, and they caught nothing. Nothing. And he's allowing this guy to inconvenience his life, and I don't mean inconvenience like, oh, I hate him, but it's more like, okay, yeah, you can use my boat. But he has to go to the back of the boat or the other side of the boat. So Jesus, he's not distracting attention. He's in the back of the boat and he's, he's doing what fishermen do with nets. He's fixing it. He's cleaning it. He's preparing it for the evening fishing. He's wondering if his wife's going to yell at him when he gets home or if he's going to sleep or whatever he does. And Jesus is preaching and he's listening in like we do. You know, he's in the radio in the back. And Jesus finishes the message and he says, hey, Pete, let's go out deeper. I'm not done with my nets. Okay. And he rows them out. And the nets are kind of there. He's 95% done making that up. And Jesus says, what I want you to do is I want you to throw your nets on the other side. Just throw them out. And he did exactly what you would do. Uh, come on. Jesus, I'm really tired. And there's no fish here. There's no fish here. But if you want me to, okay. Verse 6, and this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. <laughs> A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. That's what you call an entrepreneur. He wasn't a one-boat show. He had a fleet. And soon both boats 
two makes a fleet in my navy. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. And that's the problem with hanging out with Jesus. You see, the problem with hanging out with Jesus is just when you finally have your relationship worked out in your mind, you figure out where you end and he begins and where he begins and you end. You figure out how to balance your life and your volunteerism to God all together. When all that stuff is worked out and you're glad to have him in your life, I mean, it's well with your soul. How much better does it get than that? And you're on his team. He's so comfortable with you. He has to borrow your boat as a stage. I mean, that's pretty cool. You're on the right side of Jesus. I mean, you get close to him after seeing him do some awesome stuff. You're the guy running around in the crowd going, watch what he's going to do here. What's he going to do? I have no idea, but it's going to be awesome. Sometimes he ticks people off. Sometimes he heals them. It's great. It's a great show. You're that guy. But in the meantime, when you're not volunteering, that's Monday through Friday, you're so busy working, and once in a while Jesus shows up at the workplace, and you let him in, but you still got work to do because you don't want that to hinder with that because you've got to feed your family, you've got to do that. All of a sudden, he shows up and asks you the ridiculous. I want you to screw one more screw in. Jesus, there are 42 screws in that wall. It's not coming down. One more screw. And when you screw it in, the wall turns into gold. That's Jesus. That's what happened in this story. That's why Peter's like, oh, I don't want to do it. You have been there a hundred times unless you lie and you're not even there. The truth is, a lot of times Jesus shows up and inconveniences us because we've got him where we want him. We've got a comfortable relationship with Jesus. It's well with my soul. I'm trying to witness when I have time and opportunity allows. But don't, you know, come on, Jesus. Today I'm working. Today I'm going to work to work. I'm not going to work to serve you. I'm going to work to work. Yes, I'm serving you by taking care of my family. But all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He does something unbelievable. And you all of a sudden are reminded who it is who begged you to allow him to come into your life. And I do mean begged. Verse 8, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus. He says, oh, Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. Again, over the top, but sincere. For he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners were James and John. The sons of Zebedee were also amazed. <gasps> we know them. They become disciples too. Isn't that how your relationships go? I mean, remember when you met your lover? I mean, you were amazed at how talented and cute he was. Zach is working in a church, so I get to talk about him a little more. Hannah thinks he's funny. The only funny jokes Zach tells are the half of them he's stolen from me. I just want to be clear. We watch, Julie and I watch with amazement as he sits on our couch and flirts with her and she giggles like a schoolgirl. It's, eh. You Seriously, you think that's cute? Oh, he's so cute. He's not cute. That's our son in, in whom we're well pleased. He's still our son. I mean, come or how about with your spouse? Remember when you were dating? Ah, oh, you felt so, gosh, he was so cute trying those boots on. Or when he tried to impress your dad or whatever it was, he was so cute and funny and talented. Remember how beautiful she was with her hair all up? She was so pretty. She was clever. She wanted to cook for you then. And you... <laughs> She still does. So you date her. And then you marry him. Ah, oh, you married him. What a good week that was. 
And now, five years into this wonderful bliss of marriage, he asks you to help him with something and you're too busy doing your own thing, your necessary thing to help because, frankly, he's not nearly as cute as he was when you first met. And that's what relationships are like. We could hate it, but every one of us except Julie has been through that. I mean, the truth is, we, we've all been there. We all, we all you, you, you start taking people for granted. And then every once in a while in your time of marriage, you look across the room, or I'll look across the room as Julia's dealing with somebody, and I'll go, that is one remarkable lady. I forgot how remarkable that lady is. What an incredible person that is. You realize just how foolish and misguided your priorities are have become, and like Simon, you're not sure what to say, so you just stand there kind of looking, going, wow, I really need to change how I relate to this person. For Simon, he wept. Leave me, Jesus, I'm not worthy. You go find another guy. Just, sorry. Doesn't even know what to say. And what's interesting is Jesus replies to Simon. It's on your screen. I'm pointing at the back of the room, but it's up here. Don't be afraid. What a weird response. You see, if Jesus really wanted to comfort him, what he should have done is hug him and say, you're such a silly little man. That's not what he says. Because Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's heart. Simon isn't just broken over messing up Jesus. The reason he's weeping, the reason he tells Jesus to leave is because he hopes he doesn't. He hopes he doesn't leave. And he's scared. Because he's just exposed himself and how he's taking him for granted and how he undervalues him. You see, Simon wasn't sitting in his boats with the nets in the back going, I'll just clean these later. He was cleaning the nets because Jesus' message is in the background. It's background noise for his work instead of sitting and eating every word, just like we do with our Bibles. If we were to take a survey, most of you have at least a half dozen on your shelf. When was the last time you hungered and thirst for the Word of God? Oh, pastor, you're starting to sound Baptist. I'm asking for me too. I mean, it's just there. I'll read it tomorrow because we expect there is a tomorrow. We, we, we kind of take him for granted because, well, it is well with our souls and that's good enough for us. But it's not good enough for him. He wants more. He saved us not to just make it well with our souls. He saved us so we could be his kids and hang out with him and get to know him. And so Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. I'm not exactly sure of what Simon was afraid of, but Jesus knew he was afraid. And I think, as I've already mentioned, that, Jesus, that Simon was afraid of Jesus bailing out because that's what people do when you discount them. That's what husbands and wives do today. They divorce each other because you let them down. How dare you treat me like this? That's what everybody does. It's what they've always done, but not Jesus. Instead of hugging him and just saying, you're going to get better and patting him on the head, he says, don't be afraid. And do you know why he doesn't need to be afraid? Because look at the next line. From now on, you're going to fish for people, dude. Do you know why Peter didn't need to be afraid? Peter didn't need to be afraid, not because Jesus' mercy is so good and his graces, although those are true, but because Jesus had work for him to do, there was no way Jesus was bailing on him. You see, Peter saw himself simply as a fisherman entrepreneur that was a volunteer in God's program, not central to his plan. Peter saw himself as just somebody who could loan Jesus a stage if he needed it, but he underestimated God, his plan, and his own role in that plan. You see, to Peter, it's good that it's well with my soul, and we need to bring as many people as we can with us. Go get him, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, nope. 
Nope. You're, you are the plan, son. You are the plan. You know what? Want to know what it looked like for Peter and the others in this story to leave their own lives behind and absolutely follow? Uh, let me just give you some context. I don't know when this next story happened, but it fits in the middle somewhere here. Because this passage in Luke 5 tells us immediately they followed Jesus. Well, somewhere between verse 10 and 11, somewhere between Jesus goes, don't be afraid, you're going to fish for men now, and immediately leaving, which is the next verse, some, this happens. And both the book of Matthew and Mark tell us that this story, but Mark 1 is the one I want to tell it out of. I have no idea when it happened, but I think it either happened in that afternoon or the next morning. But one day, Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the same location as Luke 5, just the, that other story took place. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing nets into the water, they, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come and follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. This call, follow me here, is an official call for these guys to become his official disciples. This isn't the same follow me that we found in John 1. That was follow me and learn information. This is actually a technical expression back in the day that meant I want you to be my disciple. It could have been translated, get behind me as a disciple. Jesus was calling these men to leave all that they were doing to be trained by him for a work. And what was that work? I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. I'm going to teach you how to do this, but not for fish. Jesus had already mentioned it to them in Luke 5, and that's why I think it's later that day or the next morning, because they must have walked away going, fishing for men, that's a nasty hook. Now Jesus explains what he's talking about. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you how. Be my disciple. Jesus had already mentioned it, and now they were fixing to find out what it meant. As one of the theologians I read this week said, Jesus had caught them for the kingdom and now he was inviting them to be equipped to share in his task of catching others. Verse 18, and they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in the boat repairing their nets. And he called them at once and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men. Whoa. What was it like to be a follower of Christ during his ministry on earth? Pretty much the same as it is today. Pretty much exactly how it is in your life. I mean, he caught you for his kingdom when you accepted Christ as the one who God had sent to take the penalty of your sin. And now he's inviting you to drop the priorities in your life, your nets, and join him to share in his task for you and his work, even if it inconveniences your plan. And I would like to go beyond that and say that Jesus said, not only will it inconvenience your plan, you, gotta drop your, your, you need to drop your plans, pick up your cross and follow me. The exact wording is, put your selfish ambitions aside. No, selfish ambition is not a negative term. It doesn't mean your lust or your sin. That's not what he's saying. Your selfish dreams, your self-centered dreams, your dreams for life. You drop those, you pick up your cross and follow me. That's what he's asking you. That's all. Yes, it's well with your souls. But please understand, now that it's well with your souls, this born again thing, this new birth in Christ, this new birth from above that he talked to Nicodemus about, it's just birth. Then the real life begins. Jesus is going to say in John chapter 10, I have come so that you might have life. Not just life after death, but life right now. There's a life to be lived. It's exactly the same for us today. He invites us to drop our priorities in life, our nets, and to join him and share in his task for us, his work. 
I think we forget that we're not merely volunteers in the work of God that he's doing in this world. We're actually the empowered tools which God has chosen to use to accomplish his work. And in case you think I'm crazy, look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is a verse I throw up there almost every week. And here it is. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It's a gift of God. Praise God. It is well with our souls. Next verse. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done. Why? We can't boast about it. You did nothing to get saved. Zero. God did all the work. It is well with your souls. Why? What, what now? Now we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Okay, at birth the work begins. You don't work for salvation. You work because he's asking you to work. Pick up your nets. Drop your nets. Follow him. Don't just give him a stage. Clean the stage. Take the stage. That's what he's asking of us. He's not asking for some or just our souls. He's asking for our lives. I mean, we've been saved by his grace, but now we are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus, not just to live out our time and raise good kids and just go to church and support missionaries across the globe, but to be the missionaries across the globe. I'm not saying you should quit your jobs today and move to Africa. I'm saying God has placed you in Africa. Your job is your mission field. Your children are your disciples. Your church is your ministry. Your community, your money is God's. You see, I keep forgetting to remind you on a regular basis that you have no wealth. You have no money. When you accepted Jesus Christ's offer to forgive your sins, you declared him Lord of your life. He now owns it all. Everything. We give back because he owns it in the first place. We serve him because he owns our lives. We're not just in the back of the boat mending nets or cleaning nets while Jesus does the work. We are to be active in his program because that is the plan that he had from long ago. That's why he saved us. That's why we are his workmanship. And I know that you're busy cleaning your nets, and I know you're saved, and it is well with your souls, and you love Jesus, and you believe in him, and hell is no longer a problem for us. But are you aware of who it is that has begged you to be his kid? Are we aware? Do we remember who it is that is asking us to look at the world as an opportunity to serve the King of Kings? Do we remember that he's not just some, I don't know, holy get-out-of-jail-card individual who just looked at you and said, oh, I don't want him to go to hell. But he actually said, I want them to be my son now. Join the family business. That is what we do. You see, this is why the context matters. For three and a half years, yes, Jesus heals the sick, and yes, he gets followers. But the truth is, of all those followers, and we concentrate on the 12 or the 11 of the 12, but I want to be clear. There were hundreds that followed Jesus. Hundreds. Many. Many believe in Jesus. Many follow him. And the point was, he was to cast the message onto them, and they would then spread it throughout the world. And that's how we got it here. I asked you in February, how many of you are saved as the direct result of international mission work? And I ask you again, how many of you? Much better than the first time around. If you are a child of God, your hand should be up. Because the church didn't start in Lovekin, Texas, even if we think it did. It started in Jerusalem. And because the faithfulness of men and women who gave up fishing for fish and started fishing for men, we are having church at the uttermost part of the world. 
We're as far away from Jerusalem as we could be, the mother church. And what are we doing? We are here to learn to drop our nets and follow. He is not asking you to quit your job. He's asking you to see your job as a mission field. And the people around you are not pawns in a cultural game called America. They are to be reached. Whether they're socialists from New York or homosexuals from Southern California or they're lumberjacks from East Texas or they shop at Walmart at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, those are the people we are to fish for. And the question is, will we drop our phones and minister to those people? Or will we continue to laugh? Those little people. When was the last time that somebody gross to you dropped something and you picked it up and looked in their eyes and said, I hope you have a really great day. When was the last time you saw a mom struggling in Walmart? And, and, and the truth is, I know that many of you do this, okay? I'm not banging on you. It's just a question. When was the last time that in Walmart you saw a mom struggling with their kid and you took the dirty kid out of her arms and said, why don't you get your basket together I'll hold your kid? I realize that you can get arrested for that, so be careful with that advice. Again, I ask you, when was the last time the tea was poured in our lap and we were concerned more for the waitress than we were for our dirty pants? I, I, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, right? When was the last time that your aunt or uncle was going to come over for a family meal and you rolled your eyes and went, oh, I hope, you know, let's, let's get him here to tell him that we're going to meet at 11 because then maybe they'll be here by 1. We've all got that person. When was the last time we actually prayed for Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or whoever you hate the most in Washington? When was the last time we prayed for each other? When was the last time we prayed for the person who hit the cop yesterday? I don't want to pray for the person who hit the cop yesterday. You're supposed to pray for the person who hit the cop yesterday. It's what we do. Why? Because it's well with our souls. And because we're not investing our eternity in this life, we're investing it in the next, and that's what Jesus did. And we are the messengers of reconciliation empowered by the Holy Spirit to do amazing things for God because the same power that lived in the, re the resurrected Christ lives within us, and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop that except distract us. Next time you post your political agenda on the Internet, ask yourself, are you drawing people to Jesus or your political agenda? Nothing wrong with being political. I hope you vote pro-life next year. Now I've said it. But beyond that, don't put your hope in the pro-life movement. Put your hope in Jesus. Jesus. I love this sign. It's a happy accident. Jeff had a vision for something that's going uh, to happen in the next couple of years. And so before we got into this study, he ordered these and they came in and it looked like we had a great plan. It was a great plan. I love that visitors walk in and go, whoa, there's Jesus. Wait a minute. I mean, there's Jesus' name. I'm seeing some of you take pictures of it and putting it on your Instagram. There's something about that, isn't there? Because when you get tired of looking at me, which is really hard to do because I'm an unusually attractive pastor. <laughs> but you just look over to the left a little bit. And I love looking on the internet at the messages. And I love seeing the name Jesus up there. Because there's no doubt what we're about. And let me be clear. We are not about the Southern Baptist Convention. We're not about the Assemblies of God. We're not even about Easter egg hunts. We are about Jesus because that's all we got. I want you to know on the internet as you watch in, we, are, we, we, we want to grow and we want to have more people and we want to encourage you and we want to love on you. But the truth is, if, if we do all of that and you never meet Jesus, we have failed at our task. We want you to know Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. And having said that, and I know a lot of you agree with that, I want to remind you that Jesus is still your Savior. 
<laughs> as his child. He is still the one that solves all of your problems. Well, he hasn't given me enough money or he hasn't given me the health I want. No, no, no. He has solved all of your problems according to his will for your life because you are his workmanship now and he's got a plan for your life. Well, how do I know what that plan is? You just keep walking and he'll, you'll, run, you'll run headlong into the plan. I mean, what was the plan for Peter that day? To fish more. Did Peter want to fish? No. He was tired. But he did the right thing. Uh, Jesus, come on, we fished all night. But if I really need to throw the nets down. Peter, throw the nets down. Whoa, bring the other boat. And after they get the, the fish in, he did exactly what you do when you have a powerful moment of worship. When you realize who God is again, he broke down. I want you to know, child of God, he loves you as much today, if not more, than the day he saved you. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. He's simply asking you to drop your nets and put him first. That's who Jesus is. We haven't even got to Matthew yet. A few weeks, Chad's going to preach on Matthew. That crook. I love it. Jesus calls a tax-collecting crook to be one of his disciples. If you're here this morning and you don't think God can use you, you just wait till Chad's message. It better be good, dude. <laughs> so good, you guys. How can it be bad? It can't be bad. All you got to do is read the stories. Peter's just like us. This week, Jesus interrupted your life, didn't he? Oh, come on. Drop the net. No, I don't want to. Drop the net. Okay. And he shows up. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a minute to talk to your father. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and look at the floor or keep your eyes closed, but I just want to challenge you to do something. The application of this morning's message is not for you to quit your job. It's, it's not for you to drop everything and follow Jesus. What I want you to do this morning is I want you to ask Jesus to reveal the areas of your life that need to be dropped and refocused. That's all. I'm not going to give you three steps to being a great disciple. I'm going to give you one. Look at Jesus. Talk to him. Father, help me see the areas of blindness in my life. If you are in the middle of an adulterous relationship, knock it off, ask forgiveness, move on. If you are in the middle of being too busy for Jesus, help, ask him to help you reorganize. Whatever he brings to your mind right now, talk to him about it. He's using your boat. Now he wants to use you. Lord Jesus, on behalf of Carpenter's Way Baptist Church, we give ourselves to you yet again. Don't use our platform. Use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. Y'all have a wonderful Sunday. It's a beautiful day. Get outside.